all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. From MPV Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy for Women. The show all about addressing issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. I'm Karen Brown with Dr. Michelle Owens, specialist in maternal fetal medicine and OBGYN at UMMC, and surgical pathologist Dr. Allie Brown. Today, it's all about reproductive health. Pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, post-pregnancy, that would be birth. If you're pregnant now or thinking about getting pregnant, this is a show you really need to hear. You're invited to ask your questions, make comments, share your stories by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. 1-877-672-7464. Or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy for Women, and we'll be back after news from NPR here on MPB Think Radio. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. An investigation in the lead contamination crisis in Flint, Michigan, is leading to more charges today. State Attorney General Bill Schutte made the announcement a short time ago. Those who committed crimes will be held accountable. And today, today we're announcing charges against six individuals from two state departments, the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. In Minnesota, a special prosecutor is joining the Ramsey County Prosecutor's Office to consider charges in the deadly police shooting of Philando Castile, a black motorist whose death during a traffic stop was captured on video by his girlfriend. Today, Ramsey County Attorney John Choi explained what prompted the decision. If I handed this case off to any other person outside of the duties and authority of my office, I would not only be abdicating my responsibility, but potentially creating additional mistrust. Castile was killed the same week as another black man who died in a police shooting in Louisiana, sparking new protests. It also led to deadly retaliatory attacks against Dallas police that week. Health officials say four people in South Florida appear to have contracted Zika from local mosquitoes. NPR's Greg Allen reports state and local officials are taking steps to make sure the disease doesn't spread. Health officials say the four cases of Zika appear to have been contracted from mosquitoes in a one-mile square area in Miami. Florida is hiring private companies to supplement mosquito control efforts in the area. Inspectors are going door-to-door to alert residents to drain standing water and use repellent. Florida Surgeon General Celeste Phillips says similar efforts successfully controlled outbreaks of dengue and chikungunya, other mosquito-borne diseases in the past. We don't believe that there will be ongoing transmission, but we you're certainly watching that. The FDA has ordered blood donation centers in Miami and Broward County to begin screening donated blood for Zika. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. The Commerce Department is reporting that the U.S. economy grew by just 1.2 percent during the second quarter of the year. NPR's Jim Zaroli reports that the number was weaker than economists had expected. The Commerce Department says household consumption grew by 4.2 percent during April, May and June. That was the biggest increase since the end of 2014, and it was the latest sign that consumer spending remains healthy. 
But government spending fell, and spending by businesses dropped by 2.2 percent after an even bigger decline during the first quarter. Much of the decline in the growth rate happened because companies cut back on inventories that could set the stage for a rebound later this year. This was the first estimate of growth for the quarter. The government revises the numbers after more data come in. Jim Zaroli, NPR News, New York. You're listening to NPR News. Israel has announced plans to build more housing in Jewish neighborhoods in East Jerusalem, an area Palestinians claim for a future state. And it's drawn a sharp rebuke from the U.S. State Department. More on this from NPR's Daniel Estrin. Israel this week authorized more than 300 new housing units in Jewish neighborhoods of East Jerusalem. Israel captured the territory in the 1967 Six-Day War. The international community considers new Jewish housing there to be illegal settlements. Also this week, an Israeli human rights group said Israel has demolished more Palestinian homes in the West Bank so far this year than nearly every other year of the past decade. State Department spokesman John Kirby said Israel's actions are provocative and counterproductive and raise serious questions about Israel's ultimate commitment to a peaceful negotiated settlement with the Palestinians. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. More than 3,000 people are believed to have died crossing the Mediterranean during the past seven months, according to the International Organization for Migration. It says the total so far this year is close to a 60 percent increase from last July. The most recent fatalities involve 39 people whose bodies were found on Libyan shores this week. U.N. Syria envoys to Fundamistur is advising Russia to leave the work of setting up humanitarian corridors around Aleppo to the United Nations. Yesterday, Moscow announced that Russian and Syrian troops plan to open the corridors for people to get help and for fighters opposed to Syria's Assad regime to surrender. The Dow is up eight points. I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at fjc.org. And from Americans for the Arts at americansforthearts.org. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. I'm Terry Gross. Listen to Fresh Air weekdays at 3 on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to women at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy for Women, the show all about addressing issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. I'm Karen Brown with Dr. Michelle Owen, specialist in maternal fetal medicine and OBGYN at UMMC and surgical pathologist, Dr. Allie Brown. They're both making me laugh already because they're doing these weird, funny dances along with the music. 
Today's topic, well, we're talking about reproductive health today. How can you not dance when you hear that music? Pre-pregnancy, <laughs> pregnancy, post-pregnancy. If you're pregnant now, thinking about getting pregnant, you need to listen today. Lots of good information. Write down this number because you're going to have questions for sure. Call 1-877-MPB-RING. 1-877-672-7464. Or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. Good morning, doctors. Good morning. Good morning. Spoiler alert. If you are not interested in getting pregnant, you should also listen. There'll be good (laughs) stuff here for you, too. Because sometimes it happens even when you're not trying. Well, yeah, and it's not just about pregnancy. I mean, reproductive health is, at least when I envisioned what we were going to talk about and what we're going to cover over the course of this next fun-filled hour, um, it's going to be all kinds of things that influence reproductive health. I suppose men and women, right? Well, that too, yes. And, um, I mean, we have full range here, so we can cover issues related to health, hygiene, all of those things. So, yeah, it's not just about pregnancy or thinking about pregnancy, although we should think about pregnancy, but um, if you're not... That's fine, too. But I we'll suppose hygiene has to do with a welcoming environment for the baby. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and other things. <laughs> Owens is now climbing out from under the table. Thank you. <laughs> and reasons for pregnancy. Absolutely. I'm being vague purposely. Yeah. I mean, it's that the concept of, of what actually is reproductive health, I mean, it's, it's a, a very um, encompassing term. So... Um, when we talk about things that people need to do um, just to optimize their overall health um, in order to facilitate reproduction or if they are making a conscious decision to um, to not have children, um, I think people still want to ensure that their reproductive system is um, operating and functional and properly. And so that's kind of not really, it doesn't have to be related to pregnancy or even if you're planning pregnancy, but just in general, overall reproductive health and so many different aspects of our lives influence and impact reproduction. And I think that sometimes we think that it's always focused on just the act or perhaps it's just related to menstrual cycles, et cetera, but it's actually a pretty, pretty broad term. It encompasses nutrition. It encompasses preexisting medical conditions and how those might impact Um, our reproductive capacity and health. Where do you want to start? You can't hear? I have to say that when you said (laughs) ensuring all of your reproductive parts are functioning correctly, it reminded me that my car light came on that I have a check coolant level. Thank you. Ah. It made me think of like mechanics. Well, it's interesting because um, it would probably be a lot easier um, because, you know, as, as women and even men, we don't, even though our bodies are kind of like machines, you think about when we were little kids in Schoolhouse Rock, I'm a machine, you're a machine, everybody that you know, they are machines. To keep your engine running, you need energy for your evda. I don't remember that one, machine. but I like it. Anyway, so, um, so we all kind of function in that way, but just like, you know, you have a car that has a computer that the little light comes on, the check engine light or the low coolant light, like you just mentioned, um, unfortunately, our bodies don't necessarily have a visible light necessarily that we may see, but there are definitely signals or things that our bodies give off or that we, if we were paying attention, may be able to detect that could let us know that things aren't quite right. And it's really important, I think, for us to have a, 
very heightened sense of awareness about those Mm -hmm. things. And it's, you know, we say over and over again on this show, and I think people really need to, to always believe that, that, you know, your body. Um, And so when things change, um, it doesn't always necessarily mean that things are wrong, but if things change and they stay different um, and you notice those changes, especially if they're changes that are uncomfortable or that make things more difficult or more painful, et cetera, then I think that you need to pay attention to those things and don't just blow them off. When I, have I, woman- to say, I didn't even realize I was pitching you that ball, but you just hit it right out of the park with the analogy. There you go. All right. A woman gets married and she hopes children are in her future. So she goes to her doctor, her OBGYN. What are you looking for to make sure that she's ready to go? <laughs> ready to go. Ready to go in terms of in just, terms of well, childbirth. Optimi- so optimizing your capacity yes. or potential for for childbearing. Um, well, so first of all, really simple. Um, asking about what they take in. I think um, one thing that many people don't think about until they actually become pregnant is the concept of um, adequate nutrition, especially as it pertains to certain specific vitamins, et cetera. So I would say we, we think of prenatal vitamins. People get pregnant and they say, what do I do? I need, I need to start prenatal vitamins. And prenatal vitamins actually do the most benefit to women or of the most benefit before you actually know that you're pregnant. So when you think about, we talked before on this show about prevention of neural tube defects or what we call, what most people may know of as spina bifida is one of those abnormalities um, by folate deficiency or folic acid deficiency. And you need more folic acid when you're pregnant. You really need that folic acid at the time that conception actually occurs because if you have adequate folic acid, then your risk for having that abnormality goes down tremendously. So one of the first simple things that you can do is to make sure that you're taking a vitamin every day. And there's nothing wrong with taking prenatal vitamins if you're not pregnant. Now, it may make the lady at the checkout line raise her eyebrows or smile or wink at you, or (laughs) it may be a cause for questions if your friends go rummaging through your uh, medicine cabinet at home. But you don't have to be pregnant to take prenatal vitamins. And that's one of the things that I actually recommend for, for my patients of reproductive age um, is that they are on um, a prenatal vitamin or at least a vitamin that provides them with those minimum requirements of folic acid, good amounts of iron and calcium to build their Um, to keep their blood volume up, and to also build strong bones um, because those are things that help to make a difference when pregnancy actually occurs. So that would be number one and very simple and easy. Um, The next thing would be if you have any medical problems, make sure that you are paying attention to them, that you are trying as much as you can to get any medical problems that you have under great control. Um, good control is good. Great control is better. Uh, so if you have diabetes, if you have high blood pressure, um, if you have lupus and those kinds of things, if you have renal disease, um, making sure that you are in the best possible health at the time that pregnancy comes 
is also really important. It used to be if you had diabetes, you you weren't supposed to get pregnant. I mean, I saw steel magnolias, didn't you? And remember, Shelby oh, dies because she has diabetes. And She's been driving nails she has the baby. Arms. Now, see, you guys have to bring up steel magnolias. You know <laughs> that New Stage Theater is actually doing a stage production of um, steel magnolias well, during good. this season. So let's clear up. Shelby's diabetes <laughs> and why she dies. We can dies scream out, it's a lie. And why, <laughs> she, why she's told, you know, you can't get pregnant. So so now, you know, we, we know a lot more about diabetes. There's a lot more um, that we have available for treatment of diabetes. Um, and so women who have diabetes are at slightly increased risks during pregnancy. So that does make you technically a higher risk pregnancy, but it is very possible for women who have diabetes to, um, to have a successful pregnancy and a healthy outcome. And so um, how do you do that? Well, the first thing that you do is get your blood sugars under control. So glucose control is one. You want to make sure that if you're on medications, as many people are, that you're on medications that are safe to use in pregnancy. They're several um, options for both pills that can be used safely during pregnancy as well as insulin. So um, the most important thing is um, making sure that your glucoses are well-controlled and they need to be well-controlled over time because one of the big predictors that we have is that hemoglobin A1C, which is a way that we can draw something from your blood, look at that glycosylated, which is a very big word, hemoglobin, which is sugary hemoglobin, and from that, determine how well-controlled blood sugars have been over the past few months, by few meaning three. Um, and, and if you can, as a diabetic person, decrease that level down to a normal state, then you decrease the risk of a baby actually having an increased risk for birth defects. So that's one of the ways that... Um, that diabetics can make a positive influence or impact on um, childbearing should they desire. We need to take our first break of the hour. If you want to give us a call, we welcome that. one mpb ring is the time. It's the time. It's the number. That's one 7464 or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. And as we go to break, be sure to listen to this delightful music. What a lovely way of saying what you're thinking of me. I can see it. Your face is glowing. I can see it in your eyes. I'm happy in knowing that you're having my baby. You're the woman I love and I love what it's doing to you. Having my baby. Support comes from St. Stanislaus, a Catholic boarding school in Bay St. Louis for boys of all denominations, grades 7 through 12. Since 1854, St. Stanislaus has been dedicated to forming men of character in a structured environment. Learn more at ststan.com. Your favorite MPB Think Radio shows are now available on your favorite podcast app. So open that app and subscribe to any local program you love, like Everyday Tech. Android does have the most delicious operating system, I find. Jelly, it's jelly bean. The Gestalt Gardener. What's up? What you got going on? And of course, MPB's Season Pass with myself, Sam Wells, and Jay White. That's my guys, man. So what are you waiting for? Go search and subscribe today. 
This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to women at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. back on Southern Remedy for Women. Thank you for being with us this morning. I'm Karen Brown here with Dr. Michelle Owens, here with Dr. Allie Brown. We're talking about reproductive health. And they were just singing You're Having My Baby. She's Having My Baby or You're Having My Baby. Paul Anka goes back many years. And, and then we sing a- You're Washing My Dishes. <laughs> you're Doing My Laundry. Uh, Dr. Brown has never heard of the song, so she was making up her own lyrics. Yes. It's a bit sexist, that song. <laughs> yes. I thought it was very beautiful to have a man expressing his um, excitement over this miraculous occurrence, which is um, was growing another human being inside of you. It's amazing. It's good. That's oh great. I'm, I appreciate the fact that Paul Anka could see. He keeps you in the business, miracle. girl. Yeah, he could see the he could see the miracle in that. Good All job, right, we're Paul. back. We're back to. Um, Medical conditions, making sure you're on top of your own care if you have an ongoing medical Mm -hmm. condition. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, because you were talking about medications that you can take during pregnancy. You know, people always say, oh, I was pregnant and I had some wine and I didn't know I was pregnant or I was taking this sort of medication. What do you, how do you counsel your patients when they come to you uh, with with those sorts of situations? Well, I think it it really depends on what the situation is Mm -hmm. and what the exposure is. Um, For example, there are some medications. We have lots of people in Mississippi who are diabetic, but we also have lots of people who are hypertensive. And there are certain types of uh, blood pressure medications that are not safe in pregnancy. Um, And then there are blood pressure medications that are. So um, sometimes I think those kinds of exposures, the length of exposures, et cetera, are really important to know. So it's, which is kind of why it's important for women who have medical conditions. It's important for everyone, but you know, we talk about teen pregnancy and those kinds of things. Um, and over 50% of pregnancies that occur in this country are unplanned. And so those kinds of conversations happen much more frequently because many times, at least half the time, pregnancies aren't planned. If you plan those pregnancies, then you can greatly diminish the concerns because if you're planning your pregnancy, then you can make sure you're on the right medications. You can make sure that you're abstaining from the substances that need to be abstained from to decrease any risk that you might pose to the baby, et cetera. So I think planning pregnancy is really another very important part of reproductive health. But the way that I counsel patients is going to be based on that particular Mm -hmm. circumstance and the duration. Um, But the truth is that um, we have some patients who, the minute they find out they're pregnant, the first thing they do is stop their medications. What I would encourage is rather than just stopping your medications cold turkey, is that if you find that you're pregnant, to at least contact a health provider. And it doesn't mean that you have to be in their office in order to find out whether or not it's a medication that you could, should continue or discontinue. But I do believe that it's, 
it's at least worth having the conversation. So if you are a person with hypertension and you find out you're pregnant, there's nothing wrong with you calling your, your hypertension doctor, whether it's the cardiologist or the primary care physician, to say, hey, I just found out I was pregnant. Is it okay for me to continue my medicine or should I just continue my medication? Um, if you already have an established relationship with an OBGYN, that's a a question that many OBGYNs can can answer, or if not, they can contact someone like myself who also does MFM who can help to give a little bit more information about whether or not medications should be continued. Because there's because you have to there's a delicate balance in the lives of people who have medical problems. And when you're talking about pregnancy, you either are exposing a, a an unborn child to untreated disease, which in some cases we can do. Um, or you're exposing them to the medication. And in many instances, we can very safely treat medical problems with medications in pregnancy. So the concept that just because you're pregnant means that you can't have any medications at all is not accurate and in many cases can pose a significant threat to moms. And the best way to have a healthy baby is to have the healthiest mom you possibly can. Um, so you can't sacrifice to a great deal the overall health and well-being of the mom and think that that works to baby's benefit because a mom with uncontrolled blood pressure creates risks for baby. Um, and a mom with poorly controlled or uncontrolled diabetes creates an unfavorable environment for baby as well. Um, so it's really a delicate balance. Um, it is not the same in all circumstances. So you really need to have a provider's input when you're talking about what medications you should use or can use or what's safe or what's best or what's needed and required. When I was married and it was in my late 30s, I went to the doctor right away and said, you know, if it's possible for me to have kids, I'd like to do it. She said, stop smoking. I was a smoker. Stop smoking immediately. If you drink alcohol, stop drinking immediately. If you drink coffee or anything with caffeine, stop it immediately and tell your husband to do the same. That by getting rid of those things, it actually invites or it makes the, it makes the conditions riper for being able to conceive. Now, is that true or did she just say that to get me to quit? And I did quit smoking right away. So, um, so I think that there's, there's, Truth to that, to uh, to a certain degree, um, all of those things optimize your health, and by optimizing your health, um, they can make circumstances more favorable for pregnancy to occur. Um, it is also, um, you know, smoking is um, a big contributor to um, adverse outcomes or bad outcomes in pregnancy. And one of the things that we see very commonly in smoking is that um, the babies of moms who smoke tend to be smaller and have problems with um, adequate or appropriate growth. Um, and you also see some other effects in the newborns, um, increased rates of SIDS and childhood asthma and allergies and reactive airway disease, et cetera. So there are some definite in utero effects. There are certain birth defects that are more common in smokers. And there um, can also be a situation where in smoking, it can create a situation where the afterbirth or the placenta, that's been hot in the 
conversation over the past couple of weeks, but the placenta can actually come away from the wall of the uterus, um, which is called a, an abruption. And that's also seen more commonly in people who smoke. So smoking definitely increases risks in pregnancy. And there's also some uh, information out there that suggests that it may make it more difficult for a healthy egg and sperm to meet um, because of some changes that happen in your body as a result of smoking. So, um, and there's also some question about whether or not alcohol also impairs that process. So I think that by saying that, yes, the caffeine thing is a little softer. There's conflicting information about the effects of caffeine on the ability to conceive and also on early pregnancy loss. But for the most part, we just try to tell people to limit their caffeine intake as much as possible. If you can abstain from caffeine, that's wonderful. But if you must take caffeine, then it should just be the absolute minimum amount um, possible. Is the baby, if there are circumstances that might harm the baby in utero, is it more dangerous first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, or all three? Well, it depends on what it is and when it happens. So um, the first trimester, many people might be surprised to hear this, but the first trimester is the most dangerous trimester. Um, Overwhelmingly, the majority of um, the abnormal or bad things that could happen, happen during that time. So... um, there are at least a third of pregnancies that end in miscarriage and overwhelmingly the majority of those happen in the first trimester, um, in the early part of pregnancy. And by the first trimester, I'm talking about from the time that the sperm and the egg meet, um, and it's, and it's implanted into the uterus to 13 weeks, 12, 13 weeks. Um, so the first trimester is typically the most, um, the most dangerous, not necessarily for mom, but just as far as the uncertainty of the future of the pregnancy. Once you get out of the first trimester, the further along you go, the more likely you are to carry that pregnancy farther on, um, barring any pre-existing conditions. So just saying in just the average normal um, circumstance. Um, so, but there are certain infections, et cetera, that you can be exposed to. And depending on the timing of your exposure, um, they can affect pregnancy differently. Um, and there's a lot of conversation about Zika. And that's one of the things that people are very concerned about is that, you know, is it, is it Zika exposure or Zika virus exposure and infection in the first trimester? Is it worse in the second trimester? When does it... And, and how can we correlate that? And we really haven't been able to find that out. We can't say, oh, well, if you get Zika after 23 weeks, then everything's going to be fine. If you get Zika at 12 weeks, then it's going to be a problem. Let me just interject for a second that the first Zika case that is not travel related has been reported in Florida. Mm-hmm. And they are, they're trying to figure out exactly what has happened. I think there was also a question about whether or not there was one in New York, but I think that one ended up, uh, they were able to kind of determine etiology, but that Florida report is still kind of out there and people are very interested in knowing what's going on with that. Um, but the timing that you have an exposure, whether it's infectious or otherwise, really has a big impact on um, how that is going to impact the pregnancy. And that goes the same for acquired issues that we might encounter during pregnancy. If, um, for example, uh, one of the areas that's my area of interest, which is um, dealing with uh, cardiovascular hypertensive disorders in pregnancy, so preeclampsia, or what we've heard as toxemia of pregnancy, 
Um, which Downton Abbey. I was just about to say, everybody knows because Sybil. of Downton Abbey. Because of Downton Abbey, we we appreciate that. Um, at least for bringing this really important disease process to light. But if you get preeclampsia in that uh, in your second trimester, like in the latter part of the second trimester or the middle of the second trimester, as opposed to at the very end of your pregnancy, that can have huge implications because if it happens in much earlier in pregnancy, then many times those babies have to be delivered in order to save both them and mom. Is that a very uncommon situation? It's actually not as uncommon as we would like it to Uh be, unfortunately. Um, Hypertensive disorders in general um, across the world are probably about 10 to 12 percent of um, all pregnancies. And, you know, preeclampsia here in the United States is anywhere from around about 7 or 8 percent. Of all pregnancies. Is it going up? Because isn't it more common in multiple gestations? It seems like there are more and more people having multiple gestations. So so that's one thing. They're more common in really young moms. And by really young, I mean less than 17. They're more common in mothers of advanced maternal age. So women at the opposite ends of the spectrum of childbearing. So really young and those who are a little bit more seasoned. And then um, those who are who have any kind of pre-existing renal disease, pre-existing hypertension, um, any vascular diseases. So our folks who have um, any kind of mixed connective tissue disorders, mm-hmm. um, women with lupus, yeah, mm-hmm. lupus and autoimmune disorders, um, people who are, um, if it's your first pregnancy, you're at a higher risk. If you have multiple gestations, um, twins or more, the more babies and the more placental tissue you have, the more uh, of a risk you have. So all of those things put you We at have risk. to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to ask you, or I'm going to ask you now, and you can give the answer when we come back, what is the optimum age to give birth? Think about that, and we'll take a break. First, let me give the phone number out if you have a question or a comment. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464 or send us an email to women at mpbonline.org. We'll be back on Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. impaired mpb's radio reading service is here for you our dedicated team of volunteers bring the world of news and entertainment to you for information and to see if you qualify call us at 601-432-6301 catch up on past episodes and hear any of the mpb programs you've missed on the mpb public radio app available on itunes and google play Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Put your hands on the radio. 
This is Jim Dees, host of Backer Mountain Radio, inviting you to join us every Saturday night at 7 p.m., where we'll feature the best in literature and music. We're inviting you to reach out and put your hands on the radio Saturdays at 7 p.m. Backer Mountain Radio on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to women at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. what we're talking about off air on Southern Remedy for Women here on MPB Think Radio. We're going to get to some of those topics, I think. It kind of made me wince just a little bit. I'm Karen Brown here with Dr. Michelle Owens, Dr. Allie Brown. We're talking about reproductive health. Right, reproductive or pre-productive. Reproductive, (laughs) yes. Post-productive health. health. All of them. All right, I asked you before the break, is there an optimum age to carry a baby and give birth? if there's an optimal age by like just one number um clearly the way that so that is impacted by a lot of things right it's impacted by societal norms it's impacted by culture um and and lots of things and from a biologically optimal point um i think we know that the further along in life that we get you know you think about how the human life expectancy and how American life expectancy has increased um, over the past few decades. You know, we've had in the ni- in the 1900s, so we had the advent of antibiotics, and so people lived much longer than they'd ever lived before. Sanitation of water. Yeah, all of those things that really impact longevity, and now people are living longer. And, you know, there was a time in in the history of the world where basically women started having babies when they started with uh, puberty and they died in their early 20s, um, usually from complications related to childbirth or from infection. And um, so the concept of menopause and the change and all of those things um, came about pretty recently when you think about the history of of humankind Mm -hmm. because most people didn't live that long. And so you didn't live long enough to stop having periods and to transition into um, a non-reproductive state. And overwhelmingly, for a long period of time, and even now in some underdeveloped countries in the world, women still the the number one reason women die is during childbirth. Yeah. Um, so so it's kind of changed as society has changed. And as women have entered the workforce more over the past few decades, Absolutely. they're putting off having uh, children mm-hmm. until later in life. So, so if you needed a C-section, you were going to die in childbirth. Is that right? So, so actually today in the world, that still happens. Mm-hmm. There are still places in the world where women don't have immediate access to cesarean delivery and the conditions in which those procedures are often carried out lead to or facilitate their demise. And there are plenty of women who die in obstructed labor where they are 
they are laboring, laboring, laboring. The baby's stuck or what have you. They're continuing to labor. The baby doesn't come out and they don't have access to a C-section. And in many instances, those women die or and the baby dies. Um, that's is it's not uncommon at all in still many because places it's too in much trauma for the body and the baby. Well, so so you got to think about the fact that when you when you when you're growing a baby on the inside. There, you have very little control. There's some, Im, you have influence over that. Like I said, smoking helps to decrease the size of your baby. Um, and if you are diabetic, diabetics tend to have larger babies. So you can have some degree of influence on what's going on inside. But a lot of that is happening um, on automatic pilot. It's our divine design, right? So there are some babies that are, that are grown too large, for the pelvis that they inhabit. And, you know, or they're facing the wrong way or yeah, yeah. And, and we've seen we've you know, it's kind of like how you see those TV shows where people have um, have gotten so big that they can't get out of their homes. It's like a baby that is inside a mom that has basically what gotten so big. Are you watching? I just I mean, it's Lifetime. all these things you see on TV, but sometimes babies can get too big that they don't fit through the pelvis or they can be in the wrong position and it just doesn't allow for a passage of the baby to get from inside mom to outside mom. Um, and so, you know, now we here in this country have access to cesarean delivery that gives us the ability to be able to bypass uh, the pelvis if we need to. Um, but a lot of people don't have that. It's something that it's very easy to take for granted, but, um, that is not always the norm. And in many places, it's not uncommon for women to still die in childbirth. Um, that sounds just awful. It does sound awful. awful. It, it, and it is, um, because we would like to be able to, to believe that any woman who has a, a baby anywhere in this country would all have access to the same things or be able to experience the same level of care, but it's just not true, unfortunately. Um, one thing that I do want to mention, though, with respect to the, the questions about age and childbearing is that um, one of the things that people who are in the listening audience may have heard is that we do have a, a terminology called advanced maternal age, or we... We uh, abbreviate that as AMA, um, and that basically refers to any woman who is at the age of 35 at the time that she gives birth. And the reason that there is that designation is because advanced maternal age increases um, the risk for some complications related to pregnancy, whether that's the development of uh, blood pressure problems in pregnancy they have higher rates of diabetes that develops in pregnancy, higher rates of need for C-section, and if you have that available. Um, there are also more problems with complications related to labor. They can also have um, a higher rates of difficulty or problems with their baby's growth. So all of those things um, are more common or we see them more frequently in our older moms, in our moms that are 35 and older. And another one that everybody thinks about when you say that um, is the increased rate of chromosome problems or genetic problems um, 
And I think of those, the most common that people associate with uh, moms of older ages or at least advanced maternal age, the most common thing that they think of is Down syndrome. I was 39 when I had my son with Down syndrome. I was 41 when my had, I had my other son who has no problems at all. My pregnancies went fine. The only thing that happened in the third, um, third trimester of my first pregnancy, I was telling the doctor, I'm just so tired. I'm tired all the time. And he said, well, you're old <laughs> and that's to be oh, expected. Well, then they t- I was very anemic when he came back. He goes, this is why you're so tired. Yeah, but um, he singing that Paul Anka song when he told you you're old at 39. Old? That's not old. You're having a baby and you're really old. <laughs> that's awful. But I, so I, that's kind of I think if you, if you think about risks associated with, um, and there are risks if you go on the other end of the spectrum. So we were talking about the hypertensive issues, but for really, really young moms, and you know, since now the average age of um, of menarche or puberty for girls onset of periods is anywhere from nine to 12. Oh my gosh. Yes. Nine. Nine's a little girl. Nine to 12. Um, it's when average um, American girls are um, going through that transition. And um, so if you think about it, anytime once you've, you know, you're having periods or um, once you've transitioned and puberty has begun, then there's the possibility of becoming pregnant. And so for our um, young girls who uh, become pregnant, especially before the age of 17, much higher risk of having uh, problems with preterm labor, preterm delivery, also for our youngest, um, the issues related to problems with their pelvis. And so having a baby that if you're young and that small and haven't really finished your growing, and then you're trying to grow another person inside of you, it's not uncommon that that baby could be uh, a bit larger than your body could actually allow out. So we see slightly more um, C-sections in that patient population as well. We're going to take our last break of the hour. And then we're going to stop talking about pregnancy. And we're going to talk about (laughs) something else that makes me, that's what makes me cringe just a little bit. So boy, you can't wait till we come back from our break so you can find out what that is. Uh, If you want to give us a call, please do. It's 1-877-MPB-RING. 1-877-672-7464 one 672 or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back. MPB Think Radio is your voice for Mississippi. If you or your community has an event coming up and you'd like help spreading the word, send us an email You've got mail. to PSA at mpbonline.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Michelle Owens, host of Southern Remedy for Women, here to warn you about an upcoming epidemic of license plate envy. Yes, it's coming after you see someone driving around with the new MPB car tag. It's the latest way you can support Mississippi Public Broadcasting continue the mission of educating, informing, and entertaining Mississippians. This epidemic is easily remedied by visiting mpbonline.org slash car tag to pre-order yours today. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to women at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. 
And we're back on Southern Remedy for Women. We're talking about reproductive health with Dr. Michelle Owens and Dr. Allie Brown. And now we're going to the subject that made me cringe just a little bit. It's a little personal. A little personal. So go ahead, Dr. Owens. No, I, so I just wanted to talk very briefly. Um, I was reading um, an article the other day, and the article was talking about um, what has been referred to as landscaping, um, but it is about um, vaginal hygiene. And um, it brought out some really interesting points that I thought, you know, as a person who does OBGYN for a living, it really wasn't bothersome to me, but I could understand how I I was reading it thinking this is great information. Yeah. And I thought this is great information. People need to know this. Um, So I that was when I said we we at least have to discuss this article because it's out there. And the article was being written based on a societal or cultural phenomenon where people are paying more attention to the grooming of bodily hair. And there are lots of different types of theories about why this is. There's like, oh, well, after Kim Kardashian put this on Instagram, then everybody decided to go out. I know. It's like the Kardashians, whether it's eating your placentas or all this other stuff. I don't know much about their status down there. So, well... Look, if you go on their Instagram, I'm sure you'll find some things. But anywho, I'm because choose not to go on their whether, Instagram. whether it's related to social uh, social media or whatever, um, there are there's a lot more dialogue about grooming and also about appearance and things that people are um, starting to do, cultural or societal trends that are happening amongst younger people with respect to you know, distribution of body hair, whether they cut off all their uh, bodily hair, et cetera. And I'm not talking about like um, shaving your legs or whatever, but specifically as it relates to the genital region. Pubic hair. Exactly. And so, well, that and then, you know, whether or not uh, people douche and all those other things. And there's a lo- there are a lot of misperceptions about um, the genital area, the pubic area, and also misperceptions about the function of pubic hair and whether or not its presence really has something to do with hygiene. And it was interesting because there was a survey of, of people who talked about grooming. And one of the main reasons that they groomed was because they thought that it changed something hygienically, like it, it actually um, improved their hygiene. And so what I just wanted the people in our listening audience to know, and for all the women and even the men who are under the sound of my voice, is that the vagina is a self-cleansing organ. So it has the capacity, you know, it's like your self-cleaning oven. You how heard you it here can, first, y'all. How you, there's it's a, just like an oven. There's a button you press on your self-cleaning oven and it cleans the oven. And I don't know how that thing works, but miraculously it does. But what about vinegar and water? I've heard that as a... a no, you've never heard that? Salad so, dressing. <laughs> so I have heard, so vinegar and water, uh, those, that's kind of one of the mo- more common um, things that they use in those disposable douches that you can buy over the counter. Um, it's not really recommended that, that women douche. Um, and so whether it's vinegar, water, or anything else, I mean, it doesn't, ha- whether it's, it smells like the ocean or flowers or all of those things, that's not what your vagina was meant to do. Your vagina shouldn't smell like the ocean or smell like a field of lilacs. It 
it has the innate capability and we are programmed to be able to do that on our own. Now, that does not mean that there cannot be an odor that's related to the genital area or the vagina. And if that is the case, then just like I said, we might not have the we might not have that that little check engine light, but if you notice an odor there, that's not normal. And so there may be a hormonal imbalance or an infection or some other process and that's how you know that. But if you're masking it with the smell of the sea and lilacs, you might not even get an opportunity to do that. Or by douching, the, the vagina is very, um, it's, it's a unique environment that relies on a steady balance of healthy bacteria in order to keep it functioning properly. It could be irritating too, can it? Well, yeah. So if you do something. So you're something, saying the vagina is needy. No, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it is. it stays in a very delicate balance. And if the more that we do in an effort to help it, we tend to do more harm than good because all those things do is they tend to, to offset or disrupt our normal, our normal, um, flora. Our, well, flora is a, that's a pathology word. Flora? I was of, yeah. Just it offsets our, the normal Milieu. way that it's supposed to be. And so if you offset that normal thing, then you open up the opportunity for infections, irritation, discomfort, and all of those other things to happen. Don't kill your privates with kindness. Well, and the other thing is that there's a lot of, there's also more, we're getting more referrals now for people who are concerned about the way that it looks and who are in this quest for, for a pretty external genitalia. And so people come in and they actually are requesting cosmetic procedures in order to make it look a certain way. And this is a big problem amongst adolescents. It's really important, you know, for them to fit in and to be accepted. And another thing that they're saying that social media is kind of driving this. Fitting in, fitting in, people are comparing their vaginas, girls. Or or it is a big, it has become a very big part. Are you talking about plastic surgery? Well, yes. Yeah. Where you're actually doing something, they either want them trimmed down, cut off, or changed in some way so that they look a certain way. And so there are people who do this work. It's, it's out there and available. But I just wanted to at least bring that to light so that people know if you have young daughters, um, if you have nieces or whatever at home, that this is something that they are talking about amongst themselves. I've seen patients for this very thing. Um, and I look and it's normal and they are convinced that it is the ugliest thing they've ever seen. And it looks perfectly anatomically normal. And so I think that it's really important that um, if, if you have a young woman in your life, if you're a mom or a sister or whatever, just be encouraging because there's a lot related to their self-image that can be tied up in that and and people don't need to place value, I think, in, in things like that or to believe that there's some standard of beauty that relates to grooming or the appearance of their genitalia. Let me just say to any mom out there, if you're taking your daughter in to have 
labiaplastic surgery. What are you thinking about? What are you thinking? I think that it it needs to, if those kinds of things are going to take place, there should definitely be, a, it should be a long process of conversations. Um, and you definitely need to have um, a medical professional involved um, to be able, before those kinds of decisions are made. But just so that people know, pubic hair has a purpose um, and it is not unhygienic to have pubic hair. It just may require a little more care. It's just like if you have thick hair on top of your head versus if you're bald, you might have to do a little bit more to your head if you've got a thick head of hair, but it can still be clean and maintained well, and it still serves a purpose, and it doesn't mean that um, there's anything wrong with that. And so people just need to know that grooming doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the way that the genitals function. Can I ask you about, you, you talked about douches. What about oils that are used in sexual activity? If you're having oils inserted into your vagina, is that presenting a problem like douches would? So um, if you're if you're using lubricants, you know, we usually ask, about um, if you're using lubricants, we talk about um, if you're going to use if it's for protected intercourse, then you want it to be water based and not oil based. Um, however, if you are um, going to use oils for and we've talked about, you know, olive oils and things like that that can be used if you're going to use them for lubrication, um, then that doesn't have a tendency to offset um, the vaginal pH, et cetera. Um, and again, the vagina has the ability to clean itself. So as long as you practice normal standard hygiene, washing yourself with soap and water and the vagina can just be washed with water because you don't want to put soap in there. Um, then it, it has the ability to keep itself clean. That's one of the built in benefits of, vagina ownership it's a perk that you don't have to have somebody clean it's low it. maintenance i mean you don't have to yeah. have someone clean it but it actually has the capacity to clean itself and i was I just, just thinking of that. with vagina ownership you get registration and a license to operate right. you get free maintenance for a hundred thousand miles <laughs> and that was gonna that's what we have time for the show is ending now. Any any final thoughts in the last the next ten seconds? <laughs> I have to crawl up from under the table, but other than that, <laughs> thank you as always, Doctor Michelle Owens, Doctor Ali Brown. Southern Remedy for Women is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. It is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by generous support from the members of the Foundation for Public Broadcasting in Mississippi. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. For Dr. Michelle Owens, for Dr. Allie Brown, I'm Karen Brown. Join us next Friday at 11 for Southern Remedy for Women and stay tuned. NPR's Here and Now is next on MPB Think Radio. Underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy. Live blue. It's good to be blue. More at bcbsms.com.
once again getting much needed rain across most of the state as we go through this afternoon. Uh, areas close to the coast not expected to see any showers this afternoon and the temperatures will be in the upper 80s in Biloxi. Now for Columbus and Starkville, a different story. We